0: Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O.
1: If you could modify your brain, would you? If an implant or device could make you more efficient, store your memories, or maybe even let you move again? It might seem like a throwaway theoretical question, but it's one that we may all have to consider and potentially sooner than you'd think.
2: (laughs) I was not hesitant at all. As soon as they're like, yes, you can do it, and here's the 23-page consent form that you need to read and sign all that. Like, I knew I was going to sign it no matter what it said.
1: I'm Edwina Stott, and this is Defiance Tech, where we ask, what's next? Our lives have been transformed by technology at such a rapid pace in ways we could have never imagined. Every fortnight, we'll take a deep dive into tech and gain a closer look at how it's affecting everything around us now and into the future. This week, we're talking brain-computer interfaces. So let's start at the beginning. What are they?
3: Ah, so it's a really, it's one of those terms that you can kind of decompose. I am Sophia Bachelor. I'm a postgraduate researcher with the University of Leeds um, and I also work with the Alan Turing Institute on some of their open source projects uh, related to ethics and around data privacy at Open Mind. again on ethics. So, you know, you have your brain, you have a computer that is either understanding, interpreting or influencing and you have something interfacing or communicating between the two. So what it kind of means when you put it all together is that a brain-computer interface is something that allows the signals of your brain to be used by a computer to do almost anything your brain can do. Well, the question is like, what can't it do as opposed to what can it do?
1: This year, Gabe Newell, the co-founder of gaming organization Valve, has spoken about the company's work with BCIs to create fully immersive personalized computer games and hardware.
2: A lot of our product design discussions sound like science fiction. As soon as you're doing anything with neuroscience, you're like, you know, it's indistinguishable from, from science fiction.
1: Facebook have shared a few details about their project, which aims to allow people to communicate at a speed of at least 100 words per minute. What
3: if you could type directly from your brain?
1: The fastest texture in the world can do around 82. And possibly the most talked about, Elon Musk's Neuralink, which has been running since 2016.
0: I think it's gonna blow your mind.
1: They're working to build devices that will help people with paralysis and are looking to invent new technologies that will expand all of our abilities. It all sounds revolutionary, but this isn't new technology. Andrew Jackson is a professor of neural interfaces at Newcastle University.
0: Almost as soon as we developed the techniques to record signals from the brain, people started uh, thinking about whether those signals could be used in kind of real time to control external devices. But I suppose the the modern brain-computer interface research all really... uh, took steam around the turn of the millennium. There were some very sort of pioneering experiments, first in monkeys using um, implanted electrodes and showing that, that animals could learn to control uh, computer cursors on a, on a computer screen and, and kind of robotic arms, and then translating to the first sort of human tests with, with implanted arrays of electrodes that, that took place like in the early, early 2000s.
1: Andrew says the most important thing to remember when we're thinking about BCIs is that there are two approaches.
0: One is um, what was often called invasive brain computer interfaces, and that's where a neurosurgeon would place electrodes into the into the brain to record signals. And then there's non-invasive um, interfaces where electrodes are placed on the scalp, often a technique like electroencephalography to record um, signals from outside of the brain.
1: One of the people who knows firsthand just how remarkable the invasive version of this tech can be is Nathan Copeland, who we met earlier.
2: My name's Nathan Copeland, and I have a brain-computer interface for six years now. In 2004, I was in a car accident and I broke my neck. I'm actually a C5 quadriplegic.
1: He's one of the first people in the world to have this kind of technology in his head. Dr. Robert Gaunt from the University of Pittsburgh helped to put it there.
2: It's
4: actually implanted right into the brain. And so this is the part where you know our colleagues in neurosurgery get involved during this implant. Uh, but we actually have to do what we call a craniotomy, where a piece of the bone of the skull is actually removed. And then there's a, a lining or a covering over the brain itself that we have to temporarily uh, sort of open up. And and the devices actually penetrate right into the surface of the brain, so it's sitting right right in the brain tissue itself. And then these things get these layers get closed up, and then these wires come out through the skull and through the skin to this connector.
1: That connector then gets hooked up to a computer, which is in turn attached to a robotic arm. The implants
4: that we put into the brain, these little chips, um, can actually listen to the activity of individual neurons in the brain. It's actually super cool to listen to. We do this in the lab all the time. You hear these neurons, you know, pop, pop, popping away. You can basically play them over uh, like a speaker and you can listen to them firing away. And we can record the activity of a few few hundreds of these neurons at the same time. And because we put them in a part of the brain that controls movement of the arm and hand, uh, we're actually able to basically interpret that patter, those patterns of signals to be able to control the motion of a robotic limb. With these tiny pulses of electricity, we can basically force neurons to become active, and these happen to be neurons that normally uh, become responsive when, when your own hand is touched, and so with this stimulation, he is able to feel sensations coming from his own hand uh, when the robot hand grabs an object.
1: Robert and his colleagues are interested in finding ways to help people restore movement after suffering from a stroke or spinal injuries. In many of these diseases, uh, or after many of these types of
4: injuries, the brain itself remains functional, healthy, doing the things that it always did. You know, you can imagine in a spinal cord injury, it's basically the information from the brain to the body that's been disrupted or disconnected the brain itself is still able to produce all of the things that it used to do. It's just it's lost access to the body. And what a brain-computer interface can do is tap into that signal and we can bypass that injury uh, with, with the technology.
1: Through BCI technology, Robert and his team can also reconnect other parts of the body to the brain. And there's one thing in particular that's vital for movement when we reach out and when we interact with objects in our environment, so I reach out and
4: grab my coffee cup, um, I know that I've got it. I know that I'm holding on to it um, with the right force. I know I can sense how my hand is holding on to it. And if you can't do that, our ability to actually move and interact with objects is extremely impoverished. And so people who um, lose that sense of touch or uh, movement of their limbs have an extremely difficult time moving in the world, holding on to objects, even if their, say, muscles have the normal strength. Their muscles work just fine. But without that sense of touch, our ability to actually uh, do the things that we take for granted all the time uh, is extremely limited. And so in our brain-computer interfaces, we want to try and be able to restore that information in, say, again, somebody with a spinal cord injury. Okay, here we go again.
2: Index. Ring. Pinky. Index.
1: Nathan Copeland has been using Middle. his brain-computer interface for six years now. Middle. While it doesn't yet enable him to control a robotic arm outside of the lab, he can now use a computer mouse via his BCI. It allows him to draw and play computer games.
4: So what is it, left, right? And- left, right.
1: As well as changing the lives of people like Nathan, Professor Robert Gaunt says it's also helping scientists to learn much more about how the brain actually works.
4: Absolutely. I think that's one of the great benefits that comes along with these uh, sorts of studies and these research studies that are going on is that while we're doing this, we are learning all sorts of things about uh, what we do know and what we, what we don't know about how the human brain operates and so these uh, these sorts of studies are really invaluable i think to study um, how how we all behave and how we work normally and in the case of uh, when there's been injury or disease
1: even though the technology is in its early stages bcis can be life-changing for people with disabilities this isn't the tech's only application though Researcher Sophia Batchelor says the possibilities are endless.
3: So the rhythms of your brain we can detect when you start getting sleepy. And so this is really helpful for detecting driver fatigue. So if you can detect driver fatigue before it starts actually affecting their movements or their behaviours, then you could potentially stop accidents. So if you can think about, you know, your brain will start getting sleepy before you're going to be impaired in driving. And then the car will kind of help increase and be slightly more sensitive for stopping speeds or be slightly more sensitive to hazards. Another thing is that there's a very specific waveform, again, a rhythm of your brain that occurs when you recognize something. So if you kind of are in a crowd looking for your friend and then you kind of look around and see your friend, you kind of think, oh, and have that light bulb moment that has a very specific pattern of brain activity. And therefore that where there are teams currently using that to potentially look at suspect identification within the police force, because your brain knows so much more than you can be consciously aware of. Um, then there are all of the really cool things that we know about motor imagery. And this is where a lot of the research kind of sits in and stems from. So you can drive wheelchairs with your brain. You can drive drones is one of the things that I I work on and I have a lot of fun with. You can, again, use the rhythms of the brain to um, understand a lot more about how we are experiencing the world, um, there is this really cool phenomena in psychology called flow that's very, very hard to quantify because everyone kind of knows it, is that if cooking's your thing, you're kind of, you, there might be times when you drop into flow for cooking, dances, sports, uh, athletes, um, academics, you know, sometimes you'll just be really in the zone. Um, and that has uh, specific brave rhythms as well. And so the idea is that if we can help support your environment, to help support your flow, then we might be able to work a lot more healthily. There's music. We can look at music rhythms with brain-computer interfaces. You can decode speech. You can do something like think the word apple, and then a brain-computer interface can actually decode that and play it. Play that de- uh, decoding through speakers, and it will be a little muffled, um, but you can hear the word apple from this, you know, computer that was just from your brain. <laughs>
1: The possibilities for this tech are phenomenal, but let's not ignore the elephant in the room. There are plenty of risks. The University of Newcastle's Professor Andrew Jackson says privacy is
0: just one of them. You know, Facebook is developing a a brain computer interface that you might put on your head whilst you're browsing your Facebook profile. And that might, for instance, allow you to let's say, like things by kind of thinking about, you know, that you like something, right? And that might give you some added functionality to your browsing of Facebook. But do you really want Facebook to have access to those brain signals that indicate whether you like something or dislike something? I mean, that might well um, provide them with a much more powerful way to target adverts to you, for instance. Now, to some extent, that's an extension of the debate that we're already having about how much information should companies be allowed to collect from us. But it might seem to, to people, and it's plausible, that kind of brain information, brain data is somehow perhaps something that we, sh- we should make more of an effort to protect than the data that we already give away to these companies. So, so that's one. one issue would be privacy. I think there's another issue about certainly as we think of devices that interact in both directions with a brain. So if you are um, sending signals into the brain to change the state that the brain is in, then obviously, you'd be quite careful about thinking about, you know, if I'm influencing the state of, of somebody, you know, what, what, what are the, the ethical issues there? Do you know we need to sort of make sure that we're you know we're not controlling someone's brain to make them kind of do something that they shouldn't and then if that happens you know whose whose responsibility is it if a, a brain stimulated device has accidentally put me into a rage and then I've committed a crime whilst in that rage was it my fault was it the brain stimulator's fault you know these are kind of interesting ethical questions that at the moment are somewhat you know abstract questions but they're the sorts of things that we probably need to to think through before this technology becomes, becomes too widespread.
1: And there's always that pretty scary idea that someone might be able to hack into your brain and take control.
0: Yes, yes, I think that's something that, that needs to be considered. I think that's already uh, a concern with, again, rather more mundane medical devices like pacemakers, deep brain stimulators that are quite commonly used now for conditions like Parkinson's disease. When it comes to Brain implants it seems much more personal right than a heart pacemaker, although you know probably in terms of the, the harm that could be done you could probably do more harm by hacking into someone 's pacemaker, but you know yes there's a certainly it's it's unnerving to think that a hacker might be able to kind of hack into my brain interface and and send the wrong kind of stimulation into my brain or, or extract some sort of personal information from the the signals that are going on inside my brain, but like I say I think, I think that this is a issue that faces any, you know, electronic technology used in the body. It's not specific to brain interfaces.
1: Beyond our brains, this tech could also entirely reshape society.
0: I think potentially in the future, there will be all sorts of new sort of social conventions, right? I mean, it could be the when mobile phones sort of first kind of came along you know that you have the people out in front who have this bit of technology but they don't really have anyone to talk to on it because no one else has got a mobile phone the new potentially new ways of communicating kind of develop out of these technologies so you have people sending text messages but unless you have this bit of technology you can't receive any text messages so that sort of starts to put pressure on you to get a brain implant because your your friends have had had a brain implant but i, I do think it's, it's worth people knowing that these technologies are being developed right this isn't just completely out of the pages of a science fiction book And, and if history has shown us anything, it's that when you get the kind of smart people in Silicon Valley with a sort of quite a lot of financial clout behind them, you know, things move very quickly. And it's very easy to sort of think that, oh, this, this is decades away. Maybe, you know, the, the the game changing technology is being developed as we speak. And then the last thing I suppose is about with any kind of enhancement technology, um, thinking about who's, able to, to get this technology if we do develop brain interfaces that sort of might make me smarter or give me better abilities is that something that everyone's going to be able to afford Will people, you know, feel feel obliged to start using these technologies if other people are, are getting a, a benefit from them? Will, will people be left behind if they don't elect to have chips put in their brain? So these are and like I say, all these questions at the moment are are somewhat abstract because the technology hasn't arrived yet. But I think we've seen with some of the the other kind of internet technologies that Almost once the technology becomes widespread, it's too late to have the discussions about the ethical side of the technology. So I think it's worth, you know, having these conversations about what what is coming down the line and thinking about what might be the harms of these technologies as well as the benefits.
1: And it's for this reason, Andrew says, that it's important we're on the front foot when it comes to regulation.
0: Technology always has unintended consequences. So I do think it's important that legislation and regulation is aware of this. There's always a balance that you don't want to sort of suppress innovation by Over-regulating a a new area—it's an important debate to have, to, to start having about how much do we want these technologies to change the way that our brains interact with the world. I feel that it's important for sort of society at large to decide what are the applications that we want and what are the things that we don't want, and you know maybe we could help to steer this technology in a in a direction that actually benefits everyone. Um, I think the risk is that if, you know, a, a small number of tech companies get to decide what the technology is going to look like, what the technology is going to do, who it's going to do it for, then there is a, a missed opportunity, I suppose. To some extent, this is a, a, an extension of, of a process that has been going on, you know, that has been going on all throughout uh, let 's say human human evolution right of our of our brain becoming more closely intertwined with technology now that 's not always negative right i mean it 's that our brain's ability to to use technology and use tools which has has got us to this point and to to sort of say that this is Inevitably bleak as our brain becomes, sort of more more entwined with technology, is is um, I think kind of unnecessarily apocalyptic, right? I mean, this is these these are um, opportunities. It's an extension of the process that began when we started, you know, using our hands to to manipulate objects, um, and it's and it's taken us to this point where we can start using our minds to manipulate kind of information within a computer. But like I say, all through that development of technology, there have been along the way kind of unanticipated harms of that, that technology. So we ought to try and get out in front a little bit of, of these of these things.
1: And pioneer Nathan Copeland argues this opportunity is one we can't afford to miss.
2: We're not at the end goal at all. Like we are really, really at the beginning. You know, that's something I want to help make a reality that sort of super cliche of me saying Luke Skywalker gets his hand chopped off and you know, the next day he has a robotic one that moves and feels exactly like his original. We're far from that. Even before we get to that goal, we're going to hit a lot of milestones that really help people with all kinds of conditions Will find some use for these technologies. And I've always hoped that maybe it just helps, you know, the next 18 year old that, you know, has a huge accident and thinks their life is over and they can't contribute to society anymore and they can't do the things that they enjoy ever again. Um, I just hope it can spare them from that kind of despair.
1: When it comes to brain-computer interfaces, the stakes are high. On one side, boundless possibility. On the other, unravelling risk. There's one thing that's undeniable, though. The cat's out the bag. This show was written and presented by me, Edwina Stott, Additional production and sound design was by Danny Knowles and Peter McCormack was the executive producer. Thanks to Professor Andrew Jackson, Sophia Batchelor, Robert Gaunt and BCI pioneer Nathan Copeland.
0: Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at Kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O.